welcome back. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you today that we can approach a difficult portion of the Word of God and a difficult subject in our day with the confidence that the Spirit of God is our teacher. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us clear understanding in your word as to what it is that you say and how we apply it in our own lives. Make this especially meaningful to the many who are in the midst of situations related to the problem of divorce. But to all of us, Father, may we have a greater understanding of your heart and mind because we sh we've shared these truths. In Jesus' name, Amen. We are continuing our podcast series on the Master's Manifesto in Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. Matthew touches on so many vital areas of life. In our day and age, perhaps none more, none any more central than the issue where we'll be speaking to from verses 31 and 32. In these two verses we read, It hath been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorce. But I say unto you, that whosoever shall put away his wife, except for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery, and whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, commits adultery. Let me say at the very beginning that if there, there is any confusion about the subject of divorce, it is not to the fact that God has given us a confused picture in the Bible. It is due to the fact that so much sin has entered into the world that it has confused the simplicity of what God has said. God is very clear in the Bible about the issue of divorce. Now, as we look at these two verses, it is not really it is not enough for us to for us just to talk about the two verses we've got to open up the whole subject because introducing the subject could create a great amount of confusion if we didn't cover all of it and so if we didn't cover all of it and so that's why we're going to spend several weeks a couple of weeks doing it we want to cover all that the Bible has to say about this so that we can get a full grasp of what our Lord is saying. Now, in a book titled The Death of the Family, a British physician has recently suggested that the best thing we could do in human society is to do away with the family altogether. Kate Millett, who is a well-known women's leap, has written a book called Sexual Politics, and in, the, in this book, she writes that the family unit must go because it is the family that has oppressed and enslaved women. The number one cause of emotional problems in the lives of the next generation is divorce. Divorce. A summary from a family expert I found, not a word quote, says this. The trend towards quick and easy divorce and the ever-increasing divorce rate subjects more and more children to physically and emotionally absent, absent parents. The divorce rate has risen exponentially in the last century and it continues to rise. Millions of children a year are involved in divorce cases, 
millions between the ages of 13 and 18 now with one or both parents missing, end quote. He goes on to conclude this. What about the future? What can we expect if these trends continue? First, the quality of family life will continue to deteriorate, producing a society with a higher incidence of mental illness. We can expect the assassination of people in authority. Crimes of violence will increase, even those within the family. The suicide rate will, will rise. Sexual and sex, our sexuality becomes more unlimited, more separated from family, and widespread perversion will increase. End quote. I don't know about you, but that's a frightening picture to me. And that's where we're going as a society. And divorce is the main contributor. Now, what can we do about this? What is the answer? How do we get a handle on all this disaster that faces us? Well, most importantly, we must return to the principles of the word of God. What does God say? People are defending divorce on all kinds of grounds. People are trying to defend the working mother with children in the home on all kinds of grounds. People are defending television. People are defending the mobility of our society. People want to live the way they want to live. So they do anything they can do to justify that manner. But if you go back to the Bible, as we've been trying to in the last few months, and you see how the family is in, is to be ordered as God lays it out, it is the only way we'll solve our problems. I'm not here to tell you we need to do something about divorce because it messes up the next generation. It does do that. But I'm here to tell you we have to do something about divorce because it violates God's word. That's why it messes up the next generation. We don't say it's wrong because it does this or it's wrong because God says it's wrong. And so we don't want to get into a societal argument. We don't want to get into societal, soci sociological structure and sociological factors. We believe that this is something that must be dealt with at the very core with the word of God. Unfortunately, that's not what the church is doing in most cases today. Churches today give little or no or even wrong guidelines for marriage and divorce. There are many churches and pastors who will marry anybody, anybody who comes along. Parents who marry their daughters to an unsaved person. When some pastors refuse, they say, you don't have to do it if it's against your conscience. We'll have it in the church and have somebody else do it. But that's wrong. I won't do it and it shouldn't be done in the church if this is a ch if this is Christ's church but not all churches are like that and church leaders have to take a stand but not all churches will do that there are plenty of churches and plenty of pastors who will marry anybody to anybody under any circumstance there are many young people who marry for the fulfillment of fleshly desire with little or no thought about its real consequence lost for the forbidden partner, church elders involved with each other's wives 
And when exposed, they decide to do nothing about it because it might disturb people in the church. Flippancy about sex. Sex is a topic of discussion in the pulpit and in the pew and around the church in a very flippant way that is less than the dignified manner in which God speaks of it in the Bible. And I think this kind of flippancy in the name of honesty simply creates a bigger problem that it ever, than it ever solves. So it is not a problem that's been dealt with honestly and objectively in many churches. Where you, where you are self-centered, sinful, carnal people who cannot sustain right relationships, and where you have a society that tolerates divorce, you're going to have divorce on a rampant pandemic. And that's what we have in our society. It's an incessant, it is incessant in the church. I'm not saying that we reject all the people in these circumstances. I'm simply saying it is something we must deal with from the word of God. But I just don't think people look for it. Rather, they want to justify what they do, so they, they try to find something to support that. In the Master's Manifesto, we will see what God really has to say. Now, I hate divorce. I hate it. And that's okay for me to hate it because the Bible says God hates it. So I'm in agreement with him. And I hate divorce for what it does to society. I hate to think of the next generation of emotionally imbalanced people. I hate to think of all of these children in broken homes that are going to grow up and have no sense of security, no concept of authority, no sense of morality, no standards to live by. I hate to think of the societal effects of divorce, but that's down the line for me. What I really hate to think of is the fact that divorce and remarriage is a violation in many cases of the word of God. And that's even a more important issue. Now, let's go a step further in just introducing this. Many people apparently are needlessly confused as to what the Bible teaches. And I hope when we're done that you won't need to be confused anymore. Let me give you some options. Some people are teaching no divorce for any reason, under any circumstance. For anything at all. Other people teach, yes, divorce under certain circumstances, but no remarriage. No time, never, ever for anything. And then another group says, yes, divorce and remarriage anytime for anything at all. And others are saying divorce and remarriage, yes, but not for anything at all, under only under circum certain circumstances. So, so there you have the four views. And so people sort of land here and there and everywhere in those four. Now, the question we want to find out is which is biblical. In trying to discover what the Bible really says, we find ourselves exactly where the Pharisees are in Matthew 5.31. This is exactly where they are. They have trumped up an erroneous view of divorce and remarriage. And Jesus confronts them with their error and sets the record straight. It has been said, verse 31, Whosoever shall put away his wife, or divorce his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say to you, what, that whosoever shall put away his wife, except for the cause of fornication, 
causes her to commit adultery and whosoever shall marry her that is divorced commits adultery now let me set the context for you because it's really important jesus is still facing the sins of the pharisee and he's unmasking their hypocrisy you see here here's what they said they believed that you could be righteous by your works but they couldn't keep god's standard so they invented their own and then god and then called it god's standard now god had a high view of marriage god had a very clear command regarding marriage and divorce the attitude of god was never in question about it but they couldn't live by that standard so they invented a new standard called it god's standard and said look we can keep this one we are all right they dragged god down to their level they invented their own code of ethics and he unmasks them and then to make it worse they misinterpreted the bible to fit their own view which is what anybody does who wants to do that you make up your own view you find a verse to go with it and it's exactly what they did they decided that you ought to be able to shed your wife whenever you want you ought to be able to have a divorce whenever you've you've got the whim and the will to do it and so they just twisted around the scripture to fit that and the scripture they twisted around was in Deuteronomy 24 1 to 4 they invented their view to justify their sin and then they misinterpreted a verse to fit their justification and so you have in verse 31 in their view and what you have in verse 30, 32 which is Jesus's view verse 31 it has been said verse 32 but I say now it has been said beloved does not refer to the Old Testament law it refers to what these people had been taught by the rabbis and if you go back to verse 21 you have heard that it was said by them of old in other words it was the traditional jewish view passed down by the certain by certain rabbinical teachers not the view of god not the old testament not the pentateuch but their own misinterpretation of it and that's what jesus is presenting in this entire section in other words in the sermon on the mount in order to lay these people bare and naked as sinners before god he says to them your interpretation of god's truth are all wrong basically what verse 31 is saying is that they tolerated divorce for any reason jesus then says i'm just the opposite i don't tolerate it for any reason let me add a footnote at this point we've got to be honest with the bible for those who say we must stop christians from being divorced the best way to do it would be to say the bible teaches no divorce no time for no reason never allowed if you could just find a verse that said that would be okay if you could just find a verse that said that would be okay do you want to know something it doesn't say that nowhere does the bible say that you cannot invent a viewpoint in the bible to solve a social problem you have to deal with it as the bible deals with it sure it would be convenient if the bible just said no divorce and no remarriage under any condition but no one yet has been able to find that verse
People say, well, we've got to stop it because of what it leads to. We must have an absolute moral standard, not a relative one. If we start making up new doctrine to fit the problems that come in our world, we are going to be inventing another Bible. We must deal with what scripture says as it says it. We will look at the two verses, but to begin with, I will I want you to go back to Genesis <coughs> and let's see if let's see it let's see how it all began. There is so much confusion about divorce. We need to deal with it. In Genesis 2.23 we find that God had made Adam and Eve, first making Adam and then Eve, putting them together in this wonderful union. And this is what happened. Adam meets his wife and said, This now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, we shall, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall become, they shall be one flesh. Now, this is where you have the beginning of God's view of divorce. In God's view of marriage, you cannot understand divorce unless you understand marriage. You will never understand how God views a separation until you understand how he defines the union itself. Now, here we find that God has brought together a man and a woman. Now, what God is ordaining here, you have to know this. The very beginning is monogamous. That is one partner in a female and one partner male. Monogamous lifelong marriage between a man and a woman. Notice it. A man shall leave his father and his mother, cleave unto his wife. They shall become one flesh. There is no termination to that. There is no ending to that. They continue to be what to be that one flesh. Notice the words cleave unto. He shall cleave unto his wife. These are very important words because they reveal, I think, the nature of the marriage bond and the way God intended it to be. And the term has the idea of being glued to something. A man and a woman become stuck, as it were. Not in the sense that you say, I'm stuck with her, but in the sense that God has stuck you together. You are glued. When two people are glued together, they become one single individual. So it says, they shall be one flesh. And surely that refers to the sexual union, but much more. He unites a man and a woman in a unique and profound biological and spiritual bond that reaches to the very depths of their soul. It is the commitment of two wills. It is the blending of two minds. It is the mutual expression of two sets of God-given emotions so that the two become one and the goal is a perfect oneness both in the intimacy of the physical and the intimacy of the spiritual and the sharing of those things in life that cannot be shared and are not shared with any other human being god created sex and god created procreation to be the fullness of expression of that oneness but if all that is there is the sexual and there is not the oneness of the spirit, then believe me, 
the physical act is meaningless, self-centered, and exploitative. A woman said in an interview, in answering, she said, to you, sex means very little, so you don't participate very often. To me, it means very much, so it doesn't matter with whom I indulge in it. Now, that is a woman who doesn't have any conception of what God ever intended in the two becoming one. In God's definition, there were only two, and the two became one in every sense. And when husbands and wives realize this is, is in God's definition of marriage, they would realize that a divorce would be like a man cutting off his leg because he had a splinter in it. Instead of dealing somehow to get the splinter out, he amputates the whole leg. Husbands and wives who realize that God has joined them into a single entity wouldn't be so foolish as to hurt the other, other because they know they hurt themselves. And so when God brings a man and a woman together, it is to be a permanent relationship. Now, that is why Matthew 19.6 says, no man may divorce what God has joined together. You remember it as, what God has joined together, let no man what? Put asunder. The word is divorce. The word is put asunder. Chorizo. It is the very same word translated in 1 Corinthians as divorce. And so what God has joined together, let no man divorce. Jesus says in Matthew 19, that's the way it was from the beginning. Since marriage is an institution of God, then any marriage in is God, then any marriage is God in that sense, joining two people. So that so that any marriage is a default against God's law when divorce enters in. I believe that all marriages God join all marriages God joining those two people together. It isn't always a spiritual union if they are not Christians, but it is always the institution of God. For marriage is God's intervention or God's invention. And what God has joined together, let no man divorce. God never intended for divorce. Yet people enter into a marriage today with the idea if it doesn't work out, we'll just end it. If it doesn't, if if it doesn't make it, we'll forget it. Marriage is so sacred, so absolutely sacred is this oneness that any violation of that marriage union was so serious that the penalty for it was death. The seventh commandment says thou shalt not commit adultery and adultery is a sexual involvement outside marriage disobedient to that by the way was punishable by death and that was the initial institution that god gave to show the sacredness of it leviticus 20 verse 10 the man who commits adultery with another man's wife even he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. God so hated anything that defiled marriage that the penalty was death in those early years. In those early, year, early times when God was establishing the highest possible law for the instruction of man. For fornication, there, were, there was less than the death penalty. 
In fact, in Leviticus 19.20, whosoever lies carnally with a woman shall be scourged. It says, so when there wasn't marriage involved, even though the woman apparently was engaged at that time, <clears throat> when there wasn't a marriage involved, there was a scourging. But boy, when you defiled a marriage, it was death. And so this gives us some insight into how God feels about marriage. God had such a high view of this marriage that in the last of the Ten Commandments, he said, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. And what he meant there was even for a married person to desire another partner was so evil that it was one of the ten major sins. And by the way, Jesus pointed it out, didn't he? He um, writes in the same passage in Matthew, if anybody looks on a woman to lust after her, he has committed adultery in his heart. That's it. So serious. It's so serious that not only is it forbidden to engage in it, it's forbidden to even think about it. Why? Because God has such a high view that marriage is monogamous, lifelong, permanent relationship between one and another person. Leviticus 18, 18. God went further and said, no, poly no polygamy is allowed either. You can only have one partner. That's it. Now, the point of all of this is to show you beyond a shadow of a doubt that God established marriage as a spiritual, sexual, social union for one man and one woman. Never to be violated in deed, never to be violated in thought, and he condemned in a wholesale manner every violation of it and every inducing of, of a violation of it. And that's exactly God's view of marriage. No place in the Bible is divorce ever commanded. And this is where they were out of line. In verse 7, they said to Jesus, Matthew 19, Why did Moses then command to give writing in, of divorcement? You want to know something? Moses never commanded. No, Moses never did command it. That's how twisted they were. Jesus said, Moses, because of the hardness of your heart, permitted it but never did he command it. So the first truth in our study, the first reality we must be committed to is the uniqueness and permanence of marriage. Two becoming one for life, never violating that oneness in thought or in deed. Now, to solidify in our minds the absoluteness of this principle, I want you to go to another Old Testament passage. It is the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, and it's chapter 2, verse 14. A fascinating text, Matthew, Malachi chapter 2, verse 14. And in this text, just the beginning, but I want to move slowly to lay the foundation. Malachi 2, 13, let's start here. Verse 13, and this have you done again covering the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying out, insomuch that he regards not the offering anymore. Or 
or receives it with good will at your hand. In other words, you come so religiously, you come to the altar and you weep and you cry and you put the fire out of your tears. You're just carrying on, bawling your head off, so repentant. God doesn't even accept the offering. Verse 14. And you say, why? Well, what did we do? Why does God turn us away? Why doesn't he accept our worship? Because the Lord hath seen witness between thee and the wife of thy youth, against whom thou hast dealt treacherously, yet she is thy companion and the wife of thy covenant. You know why God doesn't hear you? Do you know why God doesn't want your worship? Do you know why God doesn't receive your offering? Because you don't do right by your wife. Verse 15. But no one has done so who has a remnant of the spirit. And if that's the way to translate the first part of the verse. What he's saying is. I just want you. I want to acknowledge that people who really have the Holy Spirit. Don't do this. People who are true worshippers. Don't get divorced. People who really are worshipping me in the spirit. Don't do this. And then the next line. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? The Jews knew that one of the reasons God gave marriage was to produce a godly line. Deuteronomy 6, they knew that the, they knew the great Shema was to pass on from generation to generation. And he's saying, if you divorce your wife, you're obviously not led of the spirit. And secondly, what are you going to do? Do to produce a godly seed when you are hitched up with a pagan woman. And then he continues, take heed then to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. Verse 16, for the Lord your God of Israel says that he hates divorce for one covereth violence with his garment. Boy, that is so vivid. You know what that what it's referring to? It's a figurative expression for gross sin. It's like saying you can't ride through a mud puddle without getting mud all over your clothes. It's like a man who murders somebody and he he's caught because the blood of his victim is splattered all over his robe. And that's exactly what God is saying. He's saying when you divorce your wife, you have a sin-splattered garment. That's what he's saying. It's a strong word. I hate divorce. Why? Because one who does it splatters his garment with the blood of his victim. So the sin of divorce is really laid on the one who does it. And then in the end of verse 16, he says, Therefore, take heed to your spirit and deal not treacherously. You see what this verse is saying? Divorce is sin. God hates it. Now, sometimes you may hate it too. And you may be a victim of somebody else's evil. And God will understand. But God hates divorce all the way around. If there had been, if there had never been a fall, there would never have been a curse. If there had never been a curse, there would never have been a divorce. So, we can say divorce is a result of sin. 
which is a result of the fall, which is all a part of the cause, all a part of the cause. Therefore, God hates divorce. You see, has God always hated divorce? Yes, that's what I've been trying to show you from Genesis 2 right on. You see, well, if God hates it so much, how did it get to be so prevalent? We need to go back to Genesis chapter 3 for that and review. Genesis chapter 3, 16. Man and woman have sinned. They have fallen. Now, as soon as they have fallen into sin, marriage is going to be cursed. Like every other human relationship, you're going to have trouble because you're going to have two vile sinners separated from God. Everything is going to be chaotic. And so here comes the curse. Verse 16. To the woman for sinning, I will multiply your sorrow and your conception. In sorrow shall you bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast, and hast eaten of the tree, of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat it, Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns and thistles shall be shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the of the field. In, in the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return to the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shall you return. Now, backing up verse 16, in what I want you to see, there were several elements to the curse. Separation from God, separation from man and nature, and separation from man and his wife. And you'll notice at the end of verse 16, the statement, Thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over you. In that one statement, you have the basic problem in marriage. Two sinners cursed, trying to get along. God's design originally was an indissoluble union. That's the way it was from the beginning. God's design was two together as one through all of life. But when sin entered in and passed on the human race, it resulted in a terrible conflict in marriage. The marriage ideal was shattered. Chaos enters, into, enters the home and divorce inevitably becomes the result. Now, prior to, to the fall of marriage, was pure bliss and the man was the head and the woman was the helpmate. The man's headship was a loving, caring provision of understanding. The woman's being a helpmate was a loving, caring, submissive to the one, submissiveness to the one who was given as her leader. It was beautiful. Her heart was totally devoted to him. His heart was totally devoted to her. And according to Genesis 1, 27 and 28, <clears throat> they ruled together. They ruled together. But that ended. And you'll notice what happened at the end of verse 16. Woman is cursed and her desire is to her husband and, his, and he shall rule over her. Let's take the second phrase. The word rule here is martial. It means to rule or to reign. It means to set in an elevated position or an elevated office and literally what happened was in the fall man was elevated to rule in the house to rule in the home he had a soft kind of dominance before had a loving caring approach before but now 
he is set in a place of ruling with authority. It is a different word than the word for rule in Genesis 1.28. Completely different word. Completely different concept. A new dimension of his rule had come has come about. The woman that is made immediately sub the woman then is made immediately subordinate to the man. People say there is too much male chauvinism in the world, and they're they're exactly right, and this is why. Because of the curse, and because woman led in the sin God set man over her to control her, to subdue her, as it were, to be her head. And frankly, without Jesus Christ, it can be very abusive. I agree. Sinful man has been chauvinistic, and I'm the first one to agree. Only in Christ, only in the Spirit, can a right kind of headship be restored. And that's the meaning of Ephesians chapter 5. Only in Christ. Apart from that, they, there will be oppressiveness. So, from Genesis 3.16 on, you have the battle of the sexes. Why is there a women's leave movement? This has been since Genesis 3.16. Why is there male chauvinism? This has been since Genesis 3.16. In Eve's sin, she took over the leadership and that became the sinful tendency of woman ever since. In Adam's sin, he abandoned his leadership and that has been, that has, that, and that he has to struggle to maintain for the rest of the time that man lives on earth. So marital conflict exists all around us because of the curse. And it's king of the mountain in most homes. And people fight it one way or another. What does it lead to? Divorce. And so naturally Moses says, because of the hardness of your heart, we have to face the fact that divorce is a reality. It doesn't change God's view. It doesn't change how God feels. It's part of the curse. It's part of sin. And God hates the curse. And God hates sin. And God hates divorce. It is a symptom of man's vile sinfulness. The conclusion, divorce is a destructive element. Never a righteous act under any circumstance. Under any. It hurts everybody involved. It does irreparable damage to everybody but most of all it goes against God who never ever planned that as part of human life. Now the question is as we close does the rest of scripture uphold this same perspective? People say what about exception clause in Matthew 5? What about exception clause in Matthew 19? What about exception clause in 1 Corinthians 7? Does the rest of the Bible uphold this view? For the answer to that, you'll have to listen to the next podcast. Thank you. Our Father, we trust that in our stumbling way, we've been able to communicate your heart in this most important matter. You hate divorce. You never commanded it. You knew it would happen. And you've given us word to deal with the consequence. But you hate it. And from the beginning it was never so. God help us to realize that 
it's always an issue of sin. But help us also to realize it doesn't have to happen if two people walk in the Spirit because we are filled with the Spirit. Husbands will love their wives as Christ loved the church and wives will submit to their husbands in a beautiful, humble way. Help us to follow your ideal, Lord. Not to buy the bill the world is selling. Not to give in to the curse. Not to give in to sin. God, help us to be people of the word. Not just those that know it, but those that follow it. Help us to do all we can to stay in the center of the best thing, the best plan. And Lord, I thank you too that when folks make a mistake in this area, when they sin a sin or fall victim to a divorce, they won't they don't want you are there in grace and you are there in mercy and you are there in love to bind up the broken heart, to forgive and to cleanse and to set their feet back on the path that is straight and narrow. Lord, fulfill all the good pleasure of your will in our lives. For Jesus' sake. Amen.